Welcome to Asia Rising. I'm Nick Bisley, the Executive Director of La Trobe Asia here at La Trobe University, and with me to talk about all things North Korea is Dr. Ben Habib from the Politics and International Relations Program here at La Trobe. This morning we're going to do a bit of a North Korea update. Um, North Korea is always an interesting place to, to examine and to think about, uh, and there's always curious things going on in North Korea. There's been three issues that I think we want to have a bit of a look at that have occurred uh, in the recent past. The first is the UN Human Rights Commission report. Chief author and the lead commissioner was Australia's former High Court judge, Michael Kirby, with some pretty eye-opening stories about what's going on inside the uh, Gulag system in North Korea. Another UN report, this one from the Security Council, on a sanctioned busting regime. And then finally, the ever-present challenge of North Korea's military development and its missile tests. So why don't we start with um, the Kirby report, which has come out. You've had a chance to read it now. And just wondering what your first thoughts, firstly, of what the report is and what it says. How much new is there for those of you who watch North Korea closely? And what do you think its likely impact going to be? Mm, that's a good question. As far as anything new about it, it's not really new at all. And all of these things are well known and well documented uh, in various other sources. I think its value is that it provides a catalogue. It brings together all of the known information about the abuses in North Korea's uh, coercive apparatus into one document. So if you're a researcher after this, it's, you know, it's very easy to find this stuff now. And I know many happy PhD students out there. <laughs> So Michael Kirby will be listed as your research assistant in your, your <laughs> yes. next publication. Yes. The other reason that it's useful to have a catalogue, and I think the main purpose of the report, is that it provides a catalogue of evidence that can be used in any proceedings in the International Court of Justice in the future should the North Korean regime collapse. At the moment, there's not really anything the international community can do to bring the North Korean government to account for any of these crimes. But in the event that the government falls and that these, uh, the regime elites responsible come into custody, then they can be tried in the ICJ. In that instance, this is where the catalogue of evidence will come into play. And do you think there's also something around shining a bit of a light on North Korea? As you well know, this has been going on for a long time, but it's almost as if the rest of the world has been unaware or kind of unwilling to look at it. Mm. One of the questions that struck me as soon as the panel was announced in 2013 was why now hmm. uh, given that these these crimes have been known for some time what could explain the timing of the launching of the panel and then uh, the presentation of the report earlier this year clearly there's been a lot of lobbying to get a report like this up uh, from various human rights related organizations in south korea in the united states and elsewhere another contributing factor is the fact that kim jong-un is still fairly new to the role. So it may have been felt uh, that there was a window of opportunity to exert some pressure on the North Korean government while uh, the new government was finding its feet. How is it playing inside North Korea? I mean, obviously, this is going to be not something where they go, oh, gosh, terrible, isn't it awful? We've done these sorts of things. But if you look at similar kinds of reports in democracies, so for example, Australia is regularly criticised mm. by the Human Rights Commission on variously treatment of asylum seekers or Indigenous population, plays out in the media and feeds into the debates that are occurring within Australia. How do reports like this function in a one-party authoritarian dictatorship, and particularly given the kind of propaganda story that North Korea tells its own people about what's going on in the world out there? Well, one of two things can happen. It either doesn't play out at all. I think the logic about why the government would not want to publicise this <laughs> internally is pretty obvious. 
And the other thing is it could be used as an example of imperialist propaganda, an attack from the outside that's baseless and they can sort of try and flip the story around uh, to say it's it's a plot by their enemies to try and destabilise the government. Yeah, because it seemed to me to be something that could very well feed into that broader story they tell around being surrounded by a hostile world that's out to get them and that the hero family has been the only thing keeping the Korean people safe from this nasty, barbarous world. And look, here's yet another example of this world out to get us. Where to from here, do you think, with the report? Is it just going to be another one for the researchers, one for the history books, and that's it? Or do you think there's any possible life as a book of evidence? Yeah, I I don't think it's got any legs beyond that. Uh, It served its purpose by being this catalogue of evidence that's now on the shelf and provides a bit of ammunition for human rights campaigners to go back and look. The international community doesn't have the capacity to improve the human rights situation from a military standpoint. So if you followed the arguments made prior to the Iraq war, now rightly or wrongly, the crimes of uh, Saddam Hussein's regime in Iraq uh, against his own people were held up as a reason for regime change. Now that's clearly off the table in the Korean case because Korea is such a unique strategic environment. If a a war occurs, then it's a disastrous scenario for everyone involved. It's probably a useful segue to get to sanctions because at the moment North Korea is a society that's isolated on its own terms. You know, it Mm. has its own kind of isolationist approach to domestic economic development, but it's also very heavily isolated by a pretty extensive United Nations sanction regime that's been in place for quite a long period of time. And for many who watch North Korea only periodically, often the questions raised is how is North Korea still here? You know, here's this Mm. basket case economy, you know, large scale starvation. How does it survive? And one answer to that also that people often say is, you know, somehow they're getting around these sanctions that exist. And we've just seen recently this report from the United Nations Security Council, from the branch of the Security Council that oversees the sanction regime. You've managed to get a hold of this report, which I I haven't been able to because it's quite difficult to find on the various websites. So I thought perhaps you might say a few quick words about what's in it. What does the report tell us, again, that we didn't already know? And what can we learn about how North Korea is operating and its sort of complex network of relations and the way it's plugged into the global economy? There's a relevant point here to our previous discussion about the Kirby Report is North Korea is a society that's starting to change and there are grassroots changes to the economy through uh, street entrepreneurialism that's bubbling up from below and from above the government is starting to experiment uh, with various types of piecemeal economic reforms centred around special economic zones, particularly in Rasan in the northeast. The Kaesong experiment with South Korea that's been going on for a while and they're starting to upgrade the Shiniju special economic zone just across the Yalu River from Dandong on the Chinese frontier. So in terms of the Kirby report, the blanket monolithic totalitarianism that was presented in that report is not entirely accurate because the society is starting to evolve. In terms of sanctions, it also indicates that North Korea is not as isolated as we'd be led to believe. Regular trade through China with other non-Western countries has been increasing for about the last five or six years. And what are they trading in? What's the what's this exchange of goods? Oh, the big ticket items at the moment are natural resources. So coal, uh, rare earth minerals. It was recently announced that North Korea's got the biggest reserves of rare earth minerals in the world. And you can see the increasing trade of natural resources resulting in the influx of foreign funds into the country, and that's fueling 
development, which is particularly evident in Pyongyang and increasingly so elsewhere. And are we beginning to see any political ripples coming from this economic transformation? Because they're Marxists and they should know if you transform the economic basis of your society, the political structure is going to come under some questions. Have we seen any of that if, if this change is beginning to sort of occur? If you're in the North Korean government, that's your big fear, isn't it? And every time, historically in the last 20 years, the economy has started to change from the grassroots, the government has pulled back and tried to rein in economic activity that's outside the government sphere. Now it looks like they're trying to, from above, promote entrepreneurialism and promote foreign investment. It's like riding a tiger. Mm. Whether they can do this successfully is the great question for North Korea watchers. Yeah, and particularly given it's still really a pretty new regime kim 3.0 has been in mm. for what slightly over two years isn't it but the consolidation of that new structure the new people is still not quite set and in some respects we, we saw some of the speculation around the very public purging of the regent you know his uncle cheng song Taike, late last year and there seemed to be some speculation that in part that was driven by these economic forces where Jiang was close to China and seen as potentially getting in the way of, of that initiative. Are these parts of the puzzle related, do you think? Yeah, absolutely. This is exactly the context we need to interpret the Chang Song Tech's execution in. Part of the criticisms made of him by Kim Jong-un and the government was that he'd become too close to China, that he'd made preferential deals with the Chinese that were too generous to his Chinese interlocutors. And that he was empire building uh, at the expense of the broader national interest. The degree to which those things are true is, is up for speculation, but that's the argument that's been made. That economic reform story is one to watch in terms not just of is North Korea going to go down the China path of changing its economic structure and what effect this might have on the, the politics of the place. To go back to the sanction busting mm. report itself, did we learn anything new about things like sort of illicit trade in guns and drugs and counterfeit money and how that feeds in beyond the commodity trade that you've just mentioned or was that sort of stuff left to one side uh, no that was pretty front and center in the report i mean a lot of it again is old news i mean there's some stuff in there about diplomats using diplomatic immunity to smuggle prohibited items that dates back to the 1980s and 1990s so and, this and this north korean documented. diplomats are not the only ones who do this <laughs> Yeah, yeah. But then there is some updated material in there as well. So, for example, diplomats setting up dummy bank accounts to funnel uh, funds to beat financial sanctions. So these entities are still operating through a host of different shell organisations. I think in a lot of the popular press coverage of, of the report, you saw a kind of almost a, a depiction of surprise that North Korea could be this sophisticated from my perspective, it was useful, at the very least, at kind of saying, hang on, North Korea is not just a, a cartoon kind of tin pot dictatorship run by a clownish, nasty guy at the top, but is a sophisticated political entity that's very capable of charting a course for itself in spite of what appears to be a pretty onerous sanction regime. And certainly Iran and North Korea are behind the two, the two biggest, most comprehensive sanction regimes, and North Korea is... So I'd say it's flourishing, but it's it's able to carve out space. And I think it's a good reminder that when you're dealing with North Korea and thinking about North Korea, you've got to think about it as a as a sophisticated, quite rational actor in the system. One of the other questions that came out of the sanction busting report is, can we do more to enforce the sanctions that exist? And of course, the other question is, is China doing enough? 
because most of the foreign trade and investment in, in North Korea is from China, and much of it seems at the, at the first glance to fly in the face of a sanction regime. Mm. Well, I think you highlighted exactly the trap of the crazy North Korea meme, is that people underestimate what the North Korean government's capable of because they look at uh, the Kim dynasty as a bunch of crazy actors. And clearly that's not the case, and it's not an analytically useful way of looking at the regime. In terms of China, uh, yes, China can do more uh, to enforce the sanctions, but is it in their interest to do so? Yeah, probably a better question is, will it do more rather yeah, than I mean, it do more? Yeah, uh, I it's a, mean, it's a silly assumption to think that Chinese interests converge with the interests of the United States and its regional allies uh, when it comes to North Korea. Clearly, that's not the case. The Chinese don't like it when North Koreans are too belligerent. So this time last year, we had the nuclear test uh, which followed on uh, from a successful missile launch and a whole raft of belligerent statements from the North that really ratcheted up tensions. Fortunately, we haven't seen that this time this year, but that's a, a red line for China. So whenever North Korea oversteps its bounds from the Chinese perspective, then you see the Chinese sign up to sanctions like UNSC 24. But barring that, they don't have an interest in completely enforcing the sanctions. One of the rationales for the sanctions, though not always stated, is to strangle the North Korean government uh, to collapse. Clearly, the Chinese don't want that. The usual justifications for that is the Chinese like having a, a buffer zone between American forces and the Yalu River frontier. And another argument that's put forward is they like American forces tied up on the Korean peninsula worrying about North Korea and not in other places like the South China Sea or Taiwan. Then takes us, I think, to the pointy military end of uh, North Korea's broader development. And that is, you know, if we've got a society that's becoming a little bit richer, and it looks like North Korea is certainly doing that, but also a, a country that's now better positioned to make good on its various military ambitions. I mean, it wants to be able to survive militarily, and it also has been made, I think, very clear it wants to acquire and retain a nuclear weapon capability. We saw most recently, in contrast, as you said, to last year, where things were really building up to test of ICBM launches and fusion explosion test, what we had most recently was some small-scale missile tests of short and medium-range missiles that seem to, at first glance, to be in breach of the sanction regime, but we know where, the, where that stands. Um, so where, where is North Korea at in the, that side of its development, that is to say its military ambition and its strategic autonomy, and do you think it's likely that we're going to see another nuclear test in the coming year? It's well known North Korea's got very sophisticated short and medium-range missile system. They don't have anything to prove technologically with these tests, so it's pure diplomatic signalling. And the signalling comes because of the timing uh, at that period we had the joint uh, military exercises between US and ROK forces, which they have every year at about this time of the year. This time around, the North Korean government has made its statement, but in a much more measured way. I think there might have been a realisation that they overstepped last year. Mm. In terms of a, another nuclear test, they've still got a couple of technological hurdles to master. They've demonstrated that they've got a nuclear weapon, but it's not clear to the international community yet that they've got a weapon that's deployable on one of their missile warheads. So they've got to demonstrate that they can miniaturise a nuclear weapon to fit on a warhead and also that they have a long-range missile capability that can deploy that weapon to targets further afield uh, than the immediate surrounds. Yeah, I remember I was at a conference a year or two ago in Singapore and there was a Russian 
general of of unknown sort of military affiliation, a very senior general. No one could quite tell you what part of the military he was actually from. And he had a sort of straight from central casting, thick Russian accent, but he said, you know, I want to be really clear, North Korea has an explosion, it doesn't have a bomb. They're still at that stage, and they need to do more things to get to the point where they can deliver something. Yeah, that's right. They haven't proven that they've got a deployable nuclear weapon. Now, from that perspective, I would expect to see another nuclear test at some time in the future. Now, the exact timing of that might depend on other political machinations swirling around the Korean Peninsula. So maybe this time next year, when the joint exercises are on, this has often been a a favourite time uh, for provocations. So do you think with the sort of high-visibility exercises, like a nuclear test, that there's as much political calculation as there is technical yeah, absolutely. That goes on, goes into determining when, when, what they do. Yeah, the technical aspect is clearly important here, but the timing. I mean, they can choose any time of the year to do this for maximum impact. It helps them to uh, build their diplomatic leverage by testing uh, at a time uh, that's useful in that regard. I just wanted to go back to the ultimately what I thought was ultimately a pretty moderate response to the joint exercise. It certainly, if you compare the past three or four years of of the joint ROK-US military exercises, they've always prompted something pretty pretty nasty, even if it's just nasty rhetoric. But this year, a few short-range missile tests that didn't do anything in terms of damage. If that's what we, the international community, got away with, I think we got away very light. Why do you think they were quite so moderate? Was it simply a question of overstep the mark, or do you think this reflects a marginally more moderate approach within DPRK thinking? Well, part of the rationale for the escalations last year might have had to do with internal North Korean politics. So it's possible that Kim Jong-un feels much more secure internally now, that he doesn't have to play the military card to demonstrate his credentials. I would expect to see another nuclear test. I would expect to see uh, one or two more long-range missile tests because they've still got to demonstrate uh, that that technology works properly, the multi-stage rockets. And... uh, All the signals indicate that the North Korean government wants this capability and that there's no suite of incentives, there's no set of carrots and sticks that would persuade them otherwise. My sense is that as time has gone by, we really need to move beyond the idea that the nuclear gambit is large-scale nuclear blackmail. You give us a lollipop and we'll stop behaving badly. This is something I think strategically they want. So from that perspective, the sanctions regime is a relic of the past. Its objectives are not fulfillable. So then you have to ask, why maintain the sanctions regime in place? It's documented in the literature on sanctions. Uh, Sender countries often target other countries with sanctions for their own domestic political purposes. Uh, Now, the American political process is really dogged by this doves versus hawks schism uh, within the foreign policy community. There's no way that any American administration can be seen to be too accommodating to the North Koreans without this cry of appeasement that's going up. It's one of the problems with trying to engage North Korea, this internal dynamic in US politics. From that perspective, you can see that the US, at least, has to be seen to maintain the sanctions regime no matter what happens. Military's off the table, so this is the really only the only tough option. Well, thanks very much, Ben. I think that's all we've got time for for the moment. Doubtless our friends in Pyongyang will do something this year that we haven't quite thought of and we'll hopefully be back later in the year for another North Korea update. Meanwhile, you can follow Ben on his Twitter account at Dr. Benjamin Habib. Uh, you can also follow me on my Twitter account to find out all the things that we're doing here at the Trobe Asia at Nick Bisley. Thanks for listening. <laughs>